What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Friday, December 22nd, 2023, just three days till Christmas. It's big brain time for the second time this week. Our dear friend Alistair Crook has agreed to come back to us in light of recent uh, developments in the Middle East and in Ukraine and in Washington and and, and uh, elsewhere. Alistair, always a pleasure my dear friend, welcome back to the show, and thank you for double duty this week. Much appreciated by your humble host <laughs> and by by all of our uh, happy viewers. Um, are Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu headed for a collision, a political and diplomatic collision? Oh, yes, <clears throat> very much so. They're, they're heading for one because this is precisely what Netanyahu wants. Um, he wants to use the United States to suggest that it's the United States that is blocking his plans for a new uh, a new independence war for Israel, this grand sort of war which is going to be civilization, Western civilization uh, against Hamas and against evil uh, around the world. So he needs this in order to um, for his own political needs in, in, in Israel. So, yes, uh, and the collision is coming very clearly on that and on the two-state solution and even on um, what's happening in Gaza. Yeah, it's certainly coming. The big one will, of course, be Lebanon, which will be not far off. What, what will the nature of the collision be uh, over Lebanon? Will Netanyahu uh, expect uh, the United States to tell... Iran to force, you follow me, Hezbollah to sit still? Um, <laughs> I think that's unlikely because they know Iran would, um, would not do that and would not claim to be able to do that. Uh, it's coming because at the moment um, the United States is betting heavily on its envoy um, uh, together with the French um, to persuade Hezbollah to withdraw from the south of Lebanon, either behind the Litani or 11 kilometers away from the border in the south, so that the Israelis that were displaced at the start of the conflict, if you like, after 7 October, can go back home to their homes and their villages and towns near to close to the, to the northern border. Now, what has been agreed and green-lighted is that 
um, that uh, Israel should not attack and try and destroy Hezbollah, if you like, during this period in which they're trying to negotiate an outcome by which Hezbollah voluntarily withdraws from Lebanon. But by implication, uh, it's very clear that they expect Hezbollah to be destroyed <coughs> or an attempt to destroy it if those negoti uh, negotiations do not bear fruit. And just to take you back, because it's important context, this was the original proposal in the 2006 war. This was the idea was that um, Israel should destroy Hezbollah and then uh, America and French troops, American and French troops would take their place on the border, uh, southern border of Lebanon and protect Israel. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious. Um, I know Hezbollah quite well. I mean, they're not going to withdraw uh, from, from the southern borders. In fact, the tempo of uh, exchanges, military exchanges, which has not reached its full limit or its potential, is still ongoing and is becoming quite fierce. So this is coming. And then, of course, I mean, uh, whether you like it or not, the United States is going to be engaged in this because they're setting this up um, for what will be an attack on Hezbollah um, now probably towards the end of January because that's the date in which um, the defense minister has told those residents of the Northern Territories that they're going to return home that day. So that implies that Hezbollah, one way or another, is going to be not there. They don't want to see Hezbollah on the, on the fence. They don't want to see their phalags. They don't want to see their fighters on the other side of the fence. The residents have made that very plain to the Israelis, say, we're not going back until you've moved Hezbollah. And so there's a commitment. But does, does uh, Netanyahu not recall the last time Israel and Hezbollah fought? Do they somehow think that the IDF can fight two wars on two, on two fronts? The IDF has barely degraded, we'll get to that in a minute, um, Hamas in Gaza. Can it um, neutralize Hezbollah in the north? And uh, I, I think it's very unlikely to, to do that at all. Not only unlikely, I think it's virtually impossible. Um, like in 2006, I, um, Israel will think that it knows where the arms depots and the weapons and the missiles are located, and it will claim, as it did in 2006, that it's going to destroy all of its uh, missile resources. And of course, there was nothing there. There was false intelligence. And I don't think it'll be very different this time around. Uh, and Hezbollah, the point about Hezbollah is that they have, first of all, forces, the Radwan force, on the border, ready to go into Israel <coughs> on this occasion, to take the fight inside Israel. And beyond that, they have about 150,000 uh, smart cruise missiles um, hidden around um, Lebanon. So if Israel does attack, it's going to be something quite, quite major and catastrophic um, for Israel, I believe. Do we know if, as we speak, December 22nd, <clears throat> uh, Hezbollah has entered Israel? No, no oh, not physically. No, they have not entered uh, Israel. Um, they're firing from the Lebanese side of the border. 
Uh, and Israel is firing back into Lebanon and at targets of Hezbollah inside Lebanon. But they haven't yet moved any troops. But the Radwan forces, which I probably about six, ten thousand men, very experienced, very tough fighters. Uh, I know a bit waiting there in case they get the order from the Secretary General to to go in and take the Galilee. Yesterday, um, I had a conversation with our colleague, Professor John Mearsheimer, and I asked him his opinion of uh, the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the IDF in degrading Hamas fighters in Gaza. Uh, I'd like your thoughts on this as well. Here's uh, what Professor Mearsheimer had to say. I would submit that Israel has lost the PR war catastrophically. You tell me if they've even made a dent in Hamas. Well, it's very hard to say exactly how much damage they've done to Hamas because there's just not much information. The Israelis control who gets into Gaza, who gets out, what they see. Uh, and therefore, there's not a lot of hard facts in the media. And that includes the Israeli press uh, as well. My sense is that uh, they're not doing very well at all. First of all, the Israelis only control about 40% of Gaza. Just think about it. They control 40%. That means the other 60% uh, is territory where uh, Hamas can go and the Israelis can't get at them. Second, the Israelis have not captured any uh, hostages. That, that's quite surprising. If they haven't captured any hostages, that probably tells you a lot about their ability to find the Hamas fighters. Furthermore, if you look at the number of people that the Israelis have killed, the number is about 20,000, as you said before. And most people agree that about 70% of that 20,000 is women and children. So that would be 14,000. That means that the Israelis have killed 6,000 males. Now, those 6,000 males were certainly not all Hamas fighters. Uh, most of them, I'm sure, were innocent civilians. So let's say of the 6,000, 4,000 were civilians and 2,000 were Hamas fighters. I don't think that's the likely number, but let's give the Israelis the benefit of the doubt. That says that they've killed 2,000 Hamas fighters. Well, most people argue that Hamas had 30 to 40,000 fighters to start with. If they had 30 to 40,000 fighters and they've killed 2,000, that means they have a whole heck of a lot of fighters left. If his numbers are uh, are accurate and, and he's using publicly uh, available numbers as well as his own uh, gifted analysis, the uh, IDF uh, has killed 18,000 civilians and only 2,000 Hamas, and there's 28,000 Hamas remaining. And we don't know how many IDF fighters have been killed because the Israelis won't release those numbers. What, what's your take? on the numbers analysis, Alistair? Well, <clears throat> like the professor, I, we can't give you, you know, an empirical figure for the, if you like, losses from Hamas. But uh, what he says is correct. Uh, broadly, that's absolutely right. I mean, I would think that the losses of Hamas is perhaps between one to 3,000 out of a force of, um, if you, as he said, 30,000 total. 
what's interesting is we don't know uh, what are the Israeli losses. They're being kept very secret. Um, there have been rumors. We saw sort of rumors in the press. I'm talking about the Hebrew press, not the English language press. In the Hebrew press, that they are much, much larger than is being admitted, but the censor won't allow it to be published. And that wherever there is a suggestion of this, it's been taken down. So are we, we don't know. Hundreds, are we talking hundreds or thousands in terms of IDF casualties? Uh, it's in thousands that it is. But I stress this is unconfirmed. This is in, in, in sort of Hebrew has been um, uh, uh, surrounded. So we just don't know. But there is generally a sense and an unease in Israel, that the, 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 their losses are much, much larger than the uh, IDF are, are admitting because of censorship. Everything is censored there by the military censor. So we don't know, but it, it, it certainly they've lost a lot of tanks and vehicles. That we can confirm because we see them on the videos that Hamas and others um, uh, publish every day. They've lost lots and lots of Merkova tanks and personnel carriers. So they've lost people. There's no doubt. And, and Professor Mirsham is exactly right. And it underlines the bigger point here is, <clears throat> you know, that um, Biden has been tying the United States to this bet, but it's a, a, a not a very sensible one. He's betting on the Israelis saying, as they said at the outset, oh, we'll go into Gaza and we'll destroy Hamas. And it's not happening. Um, and that means that, you know, all that we're going through, all the anger about why is there no ceasefire, resolutions at the UN, everyone getting very angry about this. What's it being done for? Well, not for any military logic now. I mean, they're in Gaza with tanks and things, but Hamas is 50 to 60 meters beneath them. And it's not engaging at this stage. It's keeping its, um, its powder dry. Let's get back to uh, Biden and, uh, and Netanyahu and the, and the clash between them. They both have a lot of problems on their hands. Netanyahu has a, a two criminal uh, prosecutions and, and an extremely low personal popularity rate, even though the Israeli public is overwhelmingly, even the Israeli left, it appears, is overwhelmingly behind uh, this uh, catastrophic invasion. Biden, of course, is, uh, is doing very poorly in the polls here against former President Trump and even against other uh, potential Republican uh, nominees. He's facing a potential impeachment. I think it's specious, but it's going to happen. Um, but more importantly, he's going to be facing an American public, I think, utterly repulsed by what the IDF is doing, by these uh, Gestapo mm -hmm. tactics. How much longer uh, will it be before he does what our friend Max Blumenthal said and picks up the phone and says, BB, stop it now or you won't get anything else from us? <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Uh, I know that's a, a very common sort of sentiment in the United States, uh, but actually I, I'm not sure how how meaningful it really is that given the the political if you like context of the US um, the situation of Congress in respect to APAC and the lobby and all of that and where the funding comes from for elections in the US how far can he go um, can he go face to face with the lobby with APAC and face them down and say, no, I'm going to stop all the support for Israel. There's still support in the United States. I mean, it's not the, the case with the younger generation up to 34, 18 to 34, but amongst the older generation, there is still support for Israel, not necessarily for, necessarily for the actions that Israel has taken, but for the sort of generic idea of Israel per se, there is still broad support in the US. So can he cut them off? I'm not sure. Um, you, you may be a better judge uh, of that than I, but I'm just saying he's being led down the primrose path um, by Netanyahu because he seems to have bought into the idea that this military operation in Gaza is going to lead to the end of Hamas, and it clearly is not. Well, not only is it not going to lead to the end of Hamas, uh, it is clearly, it clearly constitutes war crimes, war crimes that probably would be impossible to commit without American uh, moral support and American uh, equipment and ammunition. Um, uh, Vladimir Putin was indicted for a war crime and it consisted of, of saving babies and moving them from a dangerous area against their parents' will, but from an area where they might be killed to an area where they were safe, and he was indicted for a war crime. These war crimes are horrific and Gestapo yeah. and SS-like. So question, if Bibi Netanyahu and his team are liable for war crimes, is Joe Biden and his team comparably liable because they provided the means without which the war crimes could not have been executed? I think that's clearly the case um, because um, there is direct involvement and direct um, support for it in terms of providing flights with ammunition for tanks and whatever. But I think the other thing that's so important, perhaps we're missing a little, is you know the effect. Um, even now, anger in the Security Council, I mean, it's amongst Europeans. I'm not talking about just the Arab states. But look what's happening in states like Saudi Arabia. Uh, there was a poll done just there in Saudi Arabia just now. Uh, and it was done by the Washington Institute, which, as you know, is not a sort of pro-Hamas or pro-friendly organization, quite the contrary. Right. But it showed that 96% of Saudis believe that Arab states should cut 
their link to Israel. 96% believe that there should be an immediate cutting of all links to Israel until the fighting stops, until a ceasefire takes place. 40% of Saudis now support Hamas, a big increase from what it was before. And 95% of Saudis just don't believe um, the Israeli narrative about what happened on the 7th of uh, October in terms of um, rape and beheadings and other things. Right. They just don't believe all that. So, I mean, you know, the, the region is, is, is really boiling. And so when there is no ceasefire, I mean, it's a big bet that is being taken. And this is why I say many ways, you know, the United States, Biden has tried to use this tactic of embracing Israel, sending senior individuals, senior staff member after another to say, we love you, we're going to support you, whatever happens, to try and, if you like, preempt any criticism that the U.S. isn't supporting Israel. And at the same time, he is trying to preempt, if you like, what happens in Lebanon or what happens in Yemen against uh, the Yemenis or in Syria or wherever else by the United States taking charge of it and sort of controlling it and managing it. Right. But, but you know, inevitably, if that goes wrong, then the United States gets pulled further and further into this wider war. I mean, it's already had to back down on Yemen. It's no longer going to attack Yemen with directly. It is going to provide an air, a sort of air umbrella, firing 25 million value missiles back at the Yemeni missiles and drones that they make for about $2,000 each. So, I mean, but you get pulled in. It's going to be sure. Maybe the Yemenis will fire one of their missiles at an American ship. It's quite possible. And then also in Lebanon, get pulled into this because, you know, if you break Lebanon, you own it, basically. And this is, this is, this is, I mean, this is, uh, there's no doubt that um, the United States has said, <clears throat> Austin was very clear. He just said, listen, you know, to, to, to Netanyahu, and he said, listen, you know, please don't attack them until we've finished our diplomatic track a bit, please. I mean, so it's clear that there's a green light there. As we uh, speak, uh, it's morning in New York City, and the uh, delegates are gathering at the United Nations, the members of the uh, Security Council, in order to vote on an utterly watered down and probably a useless uh, resolution, the only way they could get the United States not to veto it, uh, which basically calls for humanitarian aid. It doesn't use that dreaded word, which Blinken and Biden won't allow uh, the American delegate to vote in favor of a uh, ceasefire. What is the significance? And, and we'll play the UN ambassador. Actually, let's play her first, and then I'll let you uh, comment on it. Mm. This is the American ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, cut number nine, Chris. We have worked hard and diligently over the course of the past week uh, with uh, the Emiratis, uh, with others, with Egypt, to come up with a resolution that uh, we can support. And we do have that resolution now. We're ready to vote on it. The draft resolution is not watered down. The draft resolution is a very strong resolution that is fully supported 
by the Arab group that provides them uh, what they feel is needed to get humanitarian assistance on the ground. So uh, who won here? Did the United States uh, win by getting everybody else to come along with this watered down, okay, let some trucks through, but the IDF can keep uh, killing? Or did international pressure cause the United States to cave so that it looks like something is being done? Or, I'm sorry the question is so long-winded, is nothing being done effectively <laughs> to stop the slaughter of civilians uh, in Gaza? Yes, I mean, this resolution fully is aligned with Israel and Israeli um, policy. There's nothing else to say. Um, they'd worked very hard, and she's right on that, to come up with a line, first of all, um, that it won't be a ceasefire, but it could have a brief cessation of hostilities. That was cancelled. That was taken out of the draft. And the draft now makes no reference to a cessation or a pause or a diminution. It just says urgent steps to create conditions, create conditions for sustainable ceasefire. No date, no time. Nothing. So there's nothing there in that. But the worst part of it, which she didn't mention and which is most significant, the main part of this um, resolution was about giving the United Nations control over the humanitarian aid going in. They would be responsible for inspecting it, checking it didn't have weapons, and they would have also, most importantly, responsible for directing what was necessary to go into Gaza. That has been taken out too, in a very washed down version, which said that the UN will appoint some sort of coordinator who will coordinate with all interested parties um, on what goes in and how much and when, which of course is Israel. So really there was, there was nothing in, in, I mean, it's a meaningless resolution. There's a no. lot of anger about it, of course, but that's, uh, I mean, I, I think probably it was a mistake that it would have been better to get the US to just uh, have a plain you know, vanilla resolution and have it vetoed than to go forward and say, well, this is a wonderful resolution, achieve something, because it doesn't. And the IDF is going to refrain from killing uh, UN inspectors and monitors and whatever they are, because it hasn't refrained from killing them thus far. No, and there have been uh, just uh, events just recently uh, uh, with the other uh, um, recently opened uh, crossing, Karim Sherm. Um, crossing, there's been an attack on that, uh, and um, some of the UN have been uh, affected. So uh, it, it's uh, no, there's no, there's there's no change. Uh, Israel remains in charge of what goes into uh, Gaza, um, and in and it does its slow, methodical inspections of every single truck carrying water, food, or whatever it's taking in to make sure there is nothing hidden in it in some part. So no change. So um, where do you see this going in the next five or six months? At one point, the Americans said, I think Tony Blinken, that they, or maybe Jake Sullivan, uh, the heavy military activity in Gaza would be over before the end of the year. Well, the end of the year is... Uh, 11 days from today, or 10 days, nine days from today, pardon my math. Um, 
That doesn't look likely, does it? No. Uh, in fact, it's it's got more intense in these last days. The attacks in Gaza have become more intense. I don't think that's going to happen. I think what the turning point is going to be when uh, you know uh, Israelis themselves turn uh, on the government and say, "Well, well." you're not achieving your objectives. Hamas is still there. And now you're talking about someone taking over Gaza. Whereas we want, wanted everything to be completely annihilated and removed and Gaza cleared. Um, and I think at this point, there will be a need for a diversion. And so I think at that point, the, the government will, will look for something to divert attention be it in the West Bank, be it on Temple Mount with the Al-Aqsa Mosque, or be it in Lebanon. Uh, already, as I say, the, the tempo of fighting in Lebanon is increasing in the lead up to when, when they have the justification, when, if you like, the Israeli citizen who's the UN, who's the negotiator there, Amos Hochstein, says, well, I failed to persuade um, Hezbollah to remove themselves behind um, the Litani. Of course, he's not even talking to Hezbollah. He's only talking through intermediaries um, to Hezbollah, and I don't think Hezbollah is even engaging in this discussion. You uh, recently uh, published a piece uh, pointing out the, at least by American standards, odd phenomenon of the Israeli left uh, support, de detesting Prime Minister Netanyahu as a person, but uh, fully supportive uh, of the efforts to uh, to wipe out Gaza. Is it fair to say that the events of uh, October 7 and the past two months have united the Israeli public behind the government, behind the government's policy, but not behind Benjamin Netanyahu personally? Yeah, the, I mean, this is the second huge change taking place in Israel. The first change was just over a year ago um, when there was a rotation of power and the Mizrahi element of uh, Israeli society, that is, um, Jews who came from North Africa or from the Middle East, took power with a very radical agenda and moved the government very sharply to the right. And now, in the wake of... October the 7th, we see that there's been an even greater shift by at least a third of the population to support those sort of policies that that government was advocating, i.e. more settlements in the West Bank, more uh, tough, um, if you like, military measures in Gaza, uh, and even the end of um, two-state idea altogether that they can't live with Palestinians here that there needs to be population withdrawal, removal. Alistair Crook, my dear friend, almost literally on Christmas Eve, you're good enough to give uh, us a portion of your time. Thank you very, very much from my heart for all you've done for us this past year. We have a short week next uh, week, and if you're available, we'd love to uh, chat with you, sort of big picture on the, on the lessons of 2023. Of course, the government never learns lessons, it just does whatever it thinks it can get away with politically, but we can derive lessons from, from its behavior. But Alistair, thank you so much, my dear friend. And a happy Christmas to you. Thank you. Uh, and to you and, and you your family.
Uh, coming up today, uh, a new guest, Gary Barnett, who's an expert on the evils of government. Do we even need government uh, in, in the West? An entity that survives on lying, stealing, and killing. That's at one o'clock. At three o'clock, our intelligence roundtable with Larry Johnson and Ray McGovern. And at five o'clock, we haven't forgotten him. He hasn't forgotten us. Max Blumenthal is the IDF, the new Gestapo, Judge Napolitano for judging freedom.